next Sunday, as I mentioned earlier, is, uh, is Palm Sunday, and that is the beginning of what we uh, sometimes call Passion Week, which uh, I always thought was a strange term for, uh, for the season, Passion Week. Uh, actually comes from uh, the King James Bible, King James Version of the Bible in, uh, in Acts chapter 1. It says, uh, uh, to whom... He also showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. So Jesus shows himself to his disciples, proves that he's alive, and it's after his passion. It comes from the Greek, Greek word uh, pasco, um, which can mean passion in the way that we think about it, sort of an intense emotional experience, usually a uh, um, so intense as to be somewhat torturous, but um, in the context, really, it's, it means suffering. Uh, it's the suffering of the Christ. It's uh, the things that he had to endure leading up to that uh, resurrection morning that we're preparing to celebrate together. Passover also begins uh, this coming Saturday followed immediately, of course, by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this always confuses people. Uh, these uh, holidays uh, sometimes align, sometimes don't. Sometimes they're not even in the same week because uh, they're set on different calendars. One's set on a solar calendar, one's set on a lunar calendar. And so uh, we're, it's, it's very confusing. Um, but what we need to understand is that the events of Passion Week are set against the backdrop of Passover. Now, I know uh, we're accustomed to thinking of these as completely separate things. We think of Passover as a, a Jewish holiday and Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. These are Christian holidays. Um, the reality is they are intertwined, and they always have been intertwined. And the separation that we experience, even the fact that they're on a different calendar, and the, and the fact that we regard them as belonging to these different religious systems, all of that is political. All of that was a uh, political uh, human decision that was made. It's a very uh, artificial decision, and in, in a lot of ways, in all honesty, it is a somewhat uh, anti-Semitic decision that was made in Rome at a time when the Jews had sort of fallen out of favor in Rome, and uh, so the, the Christians were sort of compelled to sort of distance themselves from, from Judaism. The problem with that, of course, is that uh, you can't really understand the events of Passion Week without that context of the Passover. This, this, is, uh, this is why Jesus was there in Jerusalem. Uh, Passover, of course, uh, commemorates the Exodus story. God sent Moses to redeem his people from Egypt, and that's when the original Passover occurs. But one story has everything to do with the other. The story of the original Passover and the story of the final week of Jesus' uh, ministry before his crucifixion and, and resurrection, these two stories uh, are really tied together. They're, in a lot of ways, one and the same story. 
They are both stories of deliverance. One is about deliverance from slavery in Egypt. One is about uh, a broader deliverance, a deliverance from sin and death. And we know that the ultimate rescue in both stories is the blood. The blood on the doorpost in the Exodus story is what causes the Passover. The angel of God passes over all those homes that were marked by the blood of the lamb. Jesus uh, is, comes into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. He comes into the city in Passover week. He enters the city, which we're going to celebrate next week, the triumphal entry we call it, but he enters the city on the day when the Passover lambs are being brought to be judged by the people to determine whether or not they're worthy of being a Passover uh, sacrifice. Jesus, of course, celebrates a Passover Seder, the the Passover meal, celebrates a Passover Seder with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. It was a Passover supper. And uh, during that meal, there are lots of symbols during that meal, but... uh, There's uh, lots of different pieces of bread, and there's lots of different cups of wine. There's one piece of bread that early on in the ceremony is removed from the others. It's broken, it's wrapped up, it's hidden away. And near the end of the meal, it is brought back out to great fanfare and celebration. It's that piece of broken bread that Jesus says to his disciples, this is my body. Right after that is a cup of wine that they drink. This cup of wine happens to be labeled in that ceremony the cup of redemption. Jesus holds up the cup of redemption in the Passover Seder, and he says, this is my blood. My blood is your redemption. And so the Christian writers tied Jesus to the Passover, and really in much of Europe, uh, they use different terminology, so they haven't distanced themselves from Passover as much as, as we have here in the States, because we have Easter. Uh, so it sounds like a whole different uh, holiday. In much of Europe, it's still Pesach, which is Passover. But the most important parallel is between Jesus and, uh, or maybe not the most important, but a very important parallel is the, the parallel between Jesus and Moses. In Deuteronomy, Chapter 18 and verse 15, Moses says this to the people. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now, some people think this prophecy was fulfilled in Aaron or someone like that. But generally speaking, um, most people seem to agree that this is a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy looking forward to the time when God will send a new Deliverer, And so the life of Moses foreshadowed the Christ. And there's a lot of interesting parallels, of course, between Moses and Jesus, both born into a time when the people are oppressed by a foreign nation, uh, right at the time of their birth. There's a nasty king character, a nasty authority who issues an edict demanding the death of all the male children. 
So both Moses and Jesus have to escape uh, that terrible order. And interestingly enough, they both escape to Egypt. Jesus' parents are warned by an angel, and they go off to Egypt and, and, and wait uh, for the king to die. Moses is, uh, as you remember, put in a basket, set afloat on the Nile, and is rescued by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. So Pharaoh's the one who gives the edict, demanding that all these male children be put to death, and it's Pharaoh's daughter that ends up rescuing Moses from the Nile. So in order to escape this slaughter, Moses goes deeper into Egypt. Moses is then, of course, adopted into a royal family, a family which he later abandons, that life of privilege he abandons, and lives with the common people, lives as a shepherd. Jesus, of course, comes from divinity, abandons all of it, abandons his uh, birthright in order to come and live among humanity. Moses goes out to the wilderness and lives in the wilderness for a time. And in the wilderness, he is confronted by God. You remember this famous story of Moses and the, the burning bush, the bush that burns but isn't consumed, and he hears the voice of God, and they have this conversation, and God gives him this mission. He's got to return to Egypt and, and, and free the people. Jesus, of course, before his ministry, goes off into the wilderness for 40 days. He's not confronted by God because he's always in conversation with God, but he's confronted by Satan, and he defends his relationship with God against Satan. Both of them return from the wilderness as deliverers. Moses comes back into Egypt and, of course, is immediately accepted and embraced by all of the Hebrew people. No. No, he is rejected. He is rejected. And Jesus says about himself that a prophet is without honor among his own people. Jesus was rejected by the very people he came to save. But the key to all of this is that Moses says that God is going to send a prophet like myself, somebody like me, and it's going to rise up from among Israel. Uh, we perhaps don't have a full appreciation of what a significant statement that is. Because for the Jewish people, even though Abraham is considered the father of all the Jewish people, Moses is really the ultimate prophet, the most important guy you could possibly know or be connected to. Moses has got it all going. Moses is not only a prophet, he's a miracle worker, he's a teacher, he's a lawgiver, he's a deliverer. And Moses... Moses does something that really sets him apart from all the other Old Testament prophets. He offers himself to God as an atonement for the sins of the people. Moses says, God's going to send someone like me and raise someone like me up from among the people. He's going to be an intercessor between God and and man, the context of this passage in which Moses says this is, is, is that the, the people of Israel are afraid to have a direct encounter with God. 
They've, they've been there at the foot of Sinai, and they've seen the fire, and they've heard the thunder, and they've come to the conclusion, probably rightly so, that if they actually encountered the face of God, they'd be struck dead on the spot. And they say, we, 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 can't, we can't have it. We can't tolerate it. We can't do it. You speak to God. Moses says, God's going to send someone who will speak for him, who will speak to you, who will tell you the truth about God, and you must listen to him when he comes. Jesus is an opportunity to know God without encountering that awesome, raw, insurmountable power of God. Of course, the ultimate parallel in these stories is the deliverance from final judgment. In Egypt, it's the judgment of that last plague, plague of death, the death of all the firstborn. And so in Exodus 12, God says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the people are instructed to take a lamb that's just enough to feed the people that are in whatever household they're in, slaughter that lamb, drain the blood, wipe that blood on the doorpost of the house, completely consume that lamb, and then be ready to go. And that blood wiped on the doorpost is going to be a marker so that when the angel of God passes over the land, those houses will all be left out of this terrible judgment of death. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. There are ten plagues in this story, right? This is not the only plague that Israel escapes. There are at least a couple others. We don't know exactly how many, but we know there's at least a couple of others because God calls them out and says, watch, this is not going to happen to my people who are in the land of Goshen. It's not going to make it there. This plague of flies is, is going is to take, take Egypt, but it's not going to make it to Goshen. And by this, you're going to know that these, my people, are spared, that they are outside of this judgment. So this is kind of interesting, isn't it? That we get to the last plague, and God has this complicated process for the people to identify themselves as different, as separate, as not, not receiving this particular judgment. Israel was spared these other plagues in part because they're geographically separated from Egypt. We think of them as being... Uh, enslaved in Egypt, but the reality is they are in Goshen, which is sort of under the control of Egypt, but is sort of its own space. This Passover is bought with the blood of sacrifice. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons that we can fathom out here. One is that this is a clear message to Egypt herself. The Egyptians had a creator god named Kanum. 
And Canum was a ram-headed man. So a body of a man with a ram's head. And Canum, it was said, is the creator god. Canum takes clay uh, from, from the Nile and shapes it and puts the, you know, forms people and puts them in the mother's womb and so that they can be born. Canum even forms uh, many of the other gods. So Canum is really the creator god of Egypt. And so uh, the sacrifice of lambs was detestable to the Egyptians because lambs were sacred. Lambs and rams were sacred to the Egyptians. So imagine the message that God is sending when suddenly every household, every household in Israel slaughters a lamb and spreads the blood on the doorpost of the house. And then before the Egyptians can even protest this horrific act, all the firstborn of their families and their flocks and their herds are struck down. The symbolism is pretty profound. We just sacrificed your creator, God, wiped the blood on the doorposts of our house, and our creator, God, enacted his judgment and passed over our household. And it's also a message to Israel the fact that they have to participate in this ritual at all is a message to Israel that they are not immune to the penalty of sin, that they require a covering. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 23, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So in regard to sin and fault, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There is no difference between Jew and Egyptian. There is no difference between Jew and Roman. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, begin before the feast, before any of the celebrations begin with what we now think of as sort of spring cleaning. Go through the entire household, find any kind of leaven, anything with leaven in it, any leaven product from a bag of yeast in your pantry to the smallest crumb on the floor. It means you've got to dig through the car seat and get all the Cheerios out. Everything's got to go. There cannot be any leaven in the household. All got to go. It's got to be gone for a week. Now, there's an important lesson in all of this, and that's this. Leaven, uh, while it's not... Uh, it's certainly not forbidden. It's used most of the time, and even in devout Jewish households. Leaven is often used in Scripture as a symbol for sin. And the process of trying to eradicate all the leaven from your household is very complicated. It's difficult. It's not as easy as you'd think. Because leaven is sort of in everything. So you have to work really hard trying to get all the stuff out. And then 
if you haven't swept all the corners, if you haven't got all the nooks and crannies, if you haven't uh, got into the, between the couch cushions, there's probably something left behind. And this is how sin is. This is how sin works in our life. We have these notions that religion and faith is just about being good people. I tell you what, if any of us had the capacity to just be good people, we, we, we wouldn't have needed this Passover. We wouldn't have needed this redemption. The fact of the matter is, it's a practical impossibility for us to remove every bit of sin from our life. And this Passover experience teaches us that. The business of removing leaven and keeping leaven out of our diet for the week. Just for one week. It's so challenging. How, how much more challenging is it to keep darkness and sin and evil thoughts and evil deeds out of our lives forever? It's not possible for us. And so what do we need? We need redemption. We need grace. We need hope that comes from somewhere else. Romans 3, 25 and 26, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Understand what he's saying there is that this whole system of sacrifices didn't really accomplish anything except it put off until the day of Jesus the ultimate perfect sacrifice. God did not judge their sins until this one sacrifice could be made, this perfect sacrifice that meets the challenge of sin, that atones for it, and that offers grace to all. So whether it's the believer today who wanders in through our door and finds a relationship with Jesus Christ as their salvation, or those who are redeemed from ancient times, chosen people of God at Sinai and in Jerusalem. They are all redeemed by Jesus Christ. The Messiah then leads his people on a passage through water. Moses led Israel through the Red Sea. Sort of a baptism of an entire nation. The passage that saves them and destroys Egypt. Much the same way that Jesus is a cornerstone for some and a stumbling block for others. The same passage can mean different things to different people based on the relationship you have with the passage maker. Jesus instructs his followers to baptize each new disciple, to send them on a passage through water, that joins us to his death and his resurrection. These events that make possible the cleansing that we're only able to achieve through Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. 
Israel lives through all of these events, lives through these miracles, is saved by God over and over again, and immediately enters the wilderness and starts complaining again. Starts fussing. Even gets to the point of saying, we'd be better off if we just stayed back there. We are the recipients of a whole new Passover. And yet, how easy, how easy is it for us to lose sight of what God has done, what God has given us? And this is really my point this morning, is that the miraculous is surprisingly easy to miss. Spring is a season of small miracles, which we have learned to take for granted. We have deluded ourselves, really, with the idea that if science can explain how something happens, explain the process, the steps that happen in these little miracles, that it explains the power behind it, that it explains the creator away. It doesn't. As the trees bud out and seeds sprout and the grass turns green again and the chicks are born and the lambs are birthed. We witness small miracles every day. How easy is it for us to forget that there's a miracle maker? How easy is it for us to discount these things, to, to write them off, to explain them away? This next couple of weeks, we will celebrate some of the greatest miracles of Jesus' ministry. How easy is it for us to pretend it didn't really happen? How easy is it for us to logically work our way through it and come to the conclusion that they must have been mistaken? I want to challenge us as we come into the week of Passion, as we come into the Passover, open our hearts and minds to these miraculous events, the events of the Passover, the events of the crucifixion, the events of the resurrection, that the tomb is empty still. There are so many around us who do not have this hope. So many who've lost sight of it. We have to clutch it all the harder. We, we have to reach for it. We have to stay in touch with it. We have, to, we have to be the people of the hope of the resurrection. And then we can share it with our community. We have invested ourselves, of course, this year in, in having a very special time to celebrate resurrection and to invite our community to do that with us. But one of the things that we want to do in advance of that is just spend some time praying for this community. Community, like so many communities around our nation, has been through a lot this year. We went through a lot this week. Hard times, difficult times. And there are immoral people and immoral forces trying to draw this community in directions it does not need to go. There are ideas afloat in our culture that undermine the truth of God that are dark and devastating and we need to be able to shine a light 
so that they scatter. So what we want to do this morning is just take the last few minutes of our service and just spend some time praying for the community of St. James and the surrounding areas. So I'm just going to open us in a time of prayer, and I want to encourage any of you who have anything to add to this prayer just to just to call it out. We'll try to keep it orderly, but uh, just speak out whatever's on your heart. Let's pray that God will bless the community of St. James. Heavenly Father, we are so privileged to be here, so privileged to be the people of your hope and your resurrection and, and your baptism, so privileged to know your word and, and to benefit from the wisdom that it provides to us. Lord, we, we love our little town. We love the people in it. And we just want them to know you. We want them to not fear judgment when they come to this place or when they encounter us in the community. We want them to know that we love them and we want them to know the hope that we have. Lord, we just open this time in prayer for our community. Thank you. 